Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 170. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I'm not bad. How about you? I'm doing all right. Um, fun pod planned this week. At least we hope it'll be fun. Uh, the Leafs played what can only be described as a batshit game yesterday. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk later on about um, some teams that we've been wrong about to start the year. Mm-hmm. But... To start off, I mean, let's talk about that game and let's talk about the big ticket issue in Leafs fandom right now, which is goaltending. Yes. So last night, the Leafs played the Detroit Red Wings, as you're likely well aware, and the final score was 10-7, which is more akin to a American football score than a hockey score. Um, even in the 80s, this would have been pretty bananas. Uh, for the era in which we live, it is exceptionally so. It was a gong show, and I have to say, it was mostly goaltending. Uh, as for the good people at Money Puck, that was the worst goaltended game in a combined sense since they've started tracking goals above expectation. In, in other words, the combined performance of all four goalies who participated in this mess of a game was the worst in terms of anything they've looked at in the last 15 years. So, yeah, that's kind of our starting point. Having watched the game, I believe it. (laughs) I think that it's probably true. Um, You know, there were some tips, some deflections, some goals that it would be unreasonable to expect an NHL goalie to save, um, at least not through blind luck. However, there were also some plays where it was just ghastly, ghastly showings from pretty much everybody. Uh, I think it has to be said, the Leafs outplayed the Red Wings, I think, handily. Um, on balance for the night. The Red Wings came on a fair bit during the third period when they started to smell blood, but Toronto was the better team. Yes, Um, pretty consistently throughout. And, I mean, the Leafs had, what, like a 7-2 lead or something? They did. They had a 7-2 lead to start the third period. (laughs) And the game ended 10-7, which is absolutely unprecedented. Now, uh, we could talk a bit about Mitch Marner. Um, I only have so much to say, but he was outstanding. He had a terrific game. Four yes. goals to assist. That whole line was absolute dynamite all night long. They they were on the ice for nine goals total. Six goals for and three goals against. That's bonkers. That just does not happen in the NHL of 2022. Like, what an unbelievable showing there. Um, they were very, very good, I have to say. They were terrific. There are no complaints about that top line. The Leafs, you know, sometimes can look like a one-line team lately, but the one line has been terrific. Bunting, Mm -hmm. Matthews, Marner. No complaints there. However, once you get past the euphoria of surviving a game like that, where you had a 7-2 lead and somehow nearly blew it, you start thinking, okay, but does this say something a little bit worrisome? Because most games, you won't be able to score more than seven goals to hold on to the win. And if the Leafs get goaltending like they got last night on a consistent basis, they will not do anything. They will finish possibly out of a playoff spot if it's that bad, but certainly they will be in big trouble come playoff time. Right. And this is where we get to, I guess, like the fundamental reality of NHL hockey, which is that the single most important person for any team is their starting goaltender. Mm Mm-hmm. Every year, the best goaltender in the year in the league is the most valuable player in the year, yeah. and it's never close. 
like if you compare the best goaltender in any given year to a skater, the best goaltender always provides more value. Mm-hmm. And there's a real problem with team evaluation in terms of there's this big loaded die hanging over everything, and whatever that die turns up will outweigh a lot of the other results of your team. If it shows a six, good for you. You're going to the finals, maybe. Shows a one, oh, you're missing the playoffs. <laughs> you know? And because there's so much inconsistency, and boy, are we going to discuss that with Jack Campbell, it can be very difficult to know what to expect in this sport, even when you try to delve into the numbers and be fact-based and detached and rational. Sometimes you just have to say, goalies are fucking voodoo, as the saying goes. And right now, with the goaltending being as unreliable as it currently is, the Leafs are in a weird spot. Uh, in terms of diagnosing their problems. There's been a real desire, including from us, to look at the team and say, okay, what's really going wrong with them? Is it only goaltending? Or are there other things that have to be accounted for? Um, I think a starting point has to be that the goaltending really has been pretty huge. Yeah, I mean, um, the Leafs... I, I was listening to the Red Wings broadcast yesterday, and they said since December 1st, the Leafs actually had the worst five-on-five save percentage in the league. Mm -hmm. Very few teams can withstand that. Essentially, no teams can withstand that. And the fact that the Leafs have not completely cratered is a testament to the fact that they are a good team generally. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, And a team that's also had very good uh, special teams play, which has carried them in in spurts. Yeah. Uh, Just to do some splits on it, up until December 1st, Jack Campbell was the best goalie in the NHL by goal saved above average. Since December 1st, he is 57th of 65 goalies that I looked at. So that's the difference between Vesna caliber and uh, low-end backup, give or take. Um, now, again, that's just compared to average. But compared to expected since December 1st, the Leafs goalies combined are 19 below expected, which is staggering. If you do the usual calculation of a win is about three more goals, then you're baking in about six more wins if the Leafs were at expected in that time. They played 29 games in that period, and they still won 18 of them. If you win 24 out of 29 games by getting goaltending as expected, uh, the Leafs have a President's Trophy winning percentage. Like, I think I do understand the case from a lot of people that it really is just goaltending, and if the Leafs were getting goaltending as expected, they would be a, pause for drama, juggernaut. They would be dominating the NHL. Um, I don't know if it's quite to that extreme extent, as those numbers may make it sound, but unquestionably a huge part of what's been troubling this team has been goaltending. Yeah, and I think it's probably the single biggest factor. Um, but as we said, goaltending is often always the single biggest factor, right? And you definitely don't want to fall into the trap of think, or t- talking about a team's goaltending and kind of throwing up your hands and shrugging and saying, okay, you know, the goaltending is what it is, and then this is your path to hockey nihilism. Mm-hmm. Of like, okay, nothing, nothing we can do. Just, you know, if goaltending is good, it's good. If goaltending is not good, we suck. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, this reminds me of kind of like the discourse in the NBA around opponent three-point shooting, which is another thing that, especially in the modern NBA where teams take a lot of threes, um, has a very, very large impact on how you uh, perform in any given game and and even in playoff series. Uh, And 
it especially matters uh, in the context of, well, sorry, it's especially akin to save percentage in the sense that uh, you have some control over it in small samples. Some teams are better at forcing um, kind of bad three-point shooters or difficult three-point shots. Um, but it, there is also a very significant chunk that cannot really be adequately explained by, by anything right now and appears to be mostly random. Yeah. And like with save percentage, it's easy to say, okay, well, th they hit all their, all their shots, so we're not going to win that game. And in a large part, that's true, but it's also, it makes it important to try and maximize all the other, you know, opportunities you have for, for success and trying to, like, optimize wherever you can to inure yourself as much as possible to that kind of poor fortune, right? We talk about this all the time in the context of playoff wins and, like, how the Leafs against Columbus, for example, you know, play that series a lot and the Leafs win, but they didn't do enough, especially on offense, to inure themselves to the chance of goaltending uh, underperformance or to, to win against varying degrees of goaltending underperformance, right? And that, that's kind of quite important. Right. So with the Leafs right now, they might be falling into essentially the same, the same issue. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, is this team doing everything it can to recover from goaltending? From a team-building perspective, you have a couple of questions, which is, one, if our goaltending is shot, what do we do about it? And two, are we doing everything to help our goaltending? There are always going to be people who say the Leafs earn a below-average save percentage because their defense isn't very good. And I think there is definitely truth in the fact that the Leafs seem to give up a lot of rush chances. Yes, but they're also among the better teams in the league during this slide, uh, in terms of goals against, at reducing scoring chances against. So I think in a lot of ways, when you actually examine under the hood, like the Leafs don't... Up, this doesn't seem to be the same issue as like the Leafs in Columbus, necessarily, or in that Columbus series, where you know they're clearly leaving a lot on the table in terms of... Um, not, you know, ensuring themselves against this sort of uh, issue. It's just you cannot ensure yourself against this sort of issue completely because the NHL is a goaltending-dependent league. Right. There's a level of bad goaltending where you lose. doesn't matter what you do. You lose because your goaltending is so bad. The Leafs' goaltending has flirted with that level, notwithstanding that I just said that they won most of their games since December 1st. Um, and, and again, by the way, I can hear Katya in my ears saying endpoints, choose your endpoints. Um, <laughs> that is certainly one date that's picked out of many, and it throws it into sharp relief. Um, it's just a way of trying to point out what's been going on. Um, all of that said, I do find myself thinking a little bit of, of it is related to, to rush chances against, even if most of it is not. And, you know, you do want to see the Leafs address that as best they can. The addition of Ilya Lyabushkin is supposedly going to help that a bit. The injury to Jake Musn is going to, unfortunately, make it worse. Still, though, if you look at this and you say, okay, this is mostly goaltending. Our goaltenders have not been good enough. And I think that that's unquestionably true. What do you do about it? And that's a much harder question to answer. Um, I've mentioned this before, but the difference between a very good goalie and a pretty mediocre or even bad one is an additional mistake every night or two. It's so easy to think of all of the things that could happen to someone that would make them make another mistake every day or two in a high-pressure environment. You just have to be off by a couple of inches. And when it's not working for you, when you're feeling the weight of expectations, your own and other people's, and you're not performing up to them, 
that can exacerbate itself. And a fairly small difference that may be hard to explain can lead to massive differences in performance or outcomes. Um, in the case of Jack Campbell, again, I'm not competent to analyze uh, goaltending on any kind of technical level. It's very hard not to wonder about confidence for me. Yeah, and I also, I mean, we've seen uh, Jack Campbell kind of like self-flagellate in front of the media. Yeah. I don't, I'm probably not pronouncing that word correctly. But like, you know, he is quite harsh on himself in, mm-hmm. uh, when discussing his performance in a way that is slightly unusual for NHL players. Um, and I definitely don't want to say that like it's indicative of anything in particular other than, than exactly what it is. Um, but I guess there's a part of me that does wonder, you know, it, d- is Campbell going to suffer more than perhaps the average NHLer in terms of a crisis in confidence? Because it, it, it seems like he gets down on himself very quickly, and that can be a very positive thing. Like, Campbell's succeeded at hockey throughout his entire life so far, and he's probably had this sort of attitude throughout. It's clearly worked for him, and mm-hmm. different things work for different people, but it is, it is unusual. Right. Um, it's hard not to take something away from it when it's such a striking change. And again, it's, you know, are we just being sucked in by variance and we're trying to rationalize it and to make it make <laughs> sense when it's really just goalies are crazy? Or is there something deeper into it because he was playing so well and everything was going well, probably better than he was ever going to be able to sustain. And now he's playing so badly that it's very tempting to say from a stats perspective, okay, he's not this bad. He's going <laughs> to work it out. But the Leafs can't be patient. This is uh, something that Justin Bourne likes to talk about. Regression to the mean is not something that you can just trust to happen when you're the player or the team involved, even though probably it will, because you have to keep approaching it as if there is a problem that you're going to fix. You know, you have to at least be aware of things that could be going wrong. You know, make sure your technique is okay. Are you getting too deep into your net? Are you positioning yourself against the post correctly? All this sort of stuff. Um... When you see errors like Campbell made on the second goal, which was just a a very poor puck-playing error, like he went behind the net and he kind of tried to go up the boards to a Red Wings player who took it as a gift, and the puck was in the net a second later, that felt to me like the kind of thing that you do when you're nervous, when you're trying to jump on it and clear the puck away from the danger zone, and you don't really think where it's going to go. Um, again, I'm psychologizing a little bit here, and it's so tempting to do with goalies, but... If there is something going on on his end, that's got to be a huge priority for the Leafs um, to figure out how to help him. Like, does he need a week off? Um, does he need some time to, to, you know, kind of recover and recalibrate? Or is it just the reality that he's not going to feel better until he starts winning a few games in a row? Because mm-hmm. um, he had a good game against Pittsburgh uh, about 10 days back, and still we're having this conversation again. Right, and this would also be easier to deal with if, if Peter Mrazek had been having a stronger year to this point as well. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, the Leafs kind of essentially hired him to be uh, a 1B. So, you know, you hope that he's going to provide some stability when Campbell is struggling. Mm-hmm. And thus far, he hasn't really. Yeah, and... That's a difficult situation. You know, the whole benefit of a platoon arrangement in net is that theoretically you always have one decent goalie available. 
or at least you're really hoping that you do because you've given yourself some security. The Leafs for the last couple months have struggled to get any kind of consistent goaltending. Mrazek has outperformed Campbell in that period, I think, but mm-hmm. he hasn't been dazzling either, and he had a an injury-plagued start to the year. You can ding Kyle Dubas for this and say, oh, we shouldn't have let Freddie Anderson go, but I think that that really is hindsight. Anderson was coming off a pretty rough year. A se- couple years, couple really. couple years, really. Yeah, I, I mean like a calendar year where he mm-hmm. was just not playing up to standard, whereas Campbell was coming off a quite good albeit limited sample. Mrazek was coming off a decent year in Carolina. You know, like, to some extent, it's it's hard to parse. Um, even if you do believe that the Leafs are a significantly worse defensive team than the Carolina Hurricanes, this just looks like a lot of bad luck. And so, I think certainly going forward, you want to play both goalies. You don't want to overtax either of them until one of them picks up the job and runs with it again. Um, do you get another goalie? I don't think you do. No, because, I mean, the Leafs have limited cap space, for one, right? And they still want to improve their skaters, most likely. You know, if if you want to add another goalie, you're essentially just absorbing Mrazic's salary as, like, you know, dead weight, effectively. Like, you bury a million of it or whatever. Um, Because... Or you, you trade Mrazek himself, and, but you're also probably increasing the price on, on whatever goalie you're acquiring if you, if you trade Mrazek because he's a negative asset right now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Kevin Papetti, actually just an hour before we went to recording here, uh, did us the courtesy of mentioning some goalies that might be available. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mentioned Marc-Andre Fleury in Chicago. You're at $7 million. Uh, Semyon Varlamov. Uh, two years at five for the Islanders currently. Our beloved James Reimer, two years at 2.25. Uh, Braden Holtby, a year at 2 million in Dallas. Anton Forsberg, a year at 900k in Ottawa. And and I think, I'm not saying Kevin was just fucking with us, but I do think he has a dry sense of humor because he included Matt Murray <laughs> for three years at 6.25 million. And he said, you would need a third team to retain salary. I'm like, no, you need a third team to anesthetize you. Until you stop <laughs> saying insane shit, like trade for Matt Murray. But <laughs> I, I'm kidding with Kevin. Anyway, he's he's surveyed the field there quite quite helpfully, and so yeah. Murray has been better since his like putrid start. I think like since he's been recalled from the AHL, he he was he's been quite good. But... I, I'm I'm being a bit uh, a bit glib there, but like I seriously would not. No, I still that. want no part of that contract. <laughs> yeah, that new. No. However, you look at these options and you think, okay, all of those players have had up and down years. And it's not like any of them is a gold-plated, I am totally confident they are going to fix things sort of goaltender. Yeah, no, there's no guarantees here. Maybe, like, Fleury's, like, the closest one because of his track record, but he's, I, I believe, has struggled this year as well. And he had he, a rough start, and he's kind of improved again as it's gone along, which is encouraging. Yeah. But, yeah, he's also uh, quite geriatric for a goaltender. He's 37 yeah. years old. Yeah, exactly, so, at the age where he could just, you know, not have the, you know cat-like reflexes you need to be an NHL goaltender. Yeah, it's a demanding job physically, God help us. And, you know, I'm... when Actually, when James Reimer was originally traded to San Jose, I did a little survey of goalie trades at the deadline, just how they tend to work at rentals and things like that, and almost all of the trades that happened were sort of decent backup slash 1B starter for a third-round pick. 
and they were teams getting goalie insurance for whatever reason. And then one year, the St. Louis Blues ponied up a ransom for Ryan Miller because they had been burned with goaltending too many times in the past in previous playoff series. And they said, we got to just button this down. So they got Ryan Miller, who was consensus a top five goalie in the world at the time, for a huge price. He came in and he was dreadful and they lost in the first round. And that's not a knock on Ryan Miller, who was, who was a great goalie and had a great career. But unfortunately, that's goaltending. Like, we're always conscious that you're rolling dice here. And even if you get someone else, you're just rolling a different die. Mm-hmm. Um, so unless you're convinced that something is wrong with Campbell and Mrazek in terms of their play, that is not fixable and that can't be hoped to iron itself out, uh, then I think you ride with the two you have, and you start the better of them in game one of the playoffs. It's not an encouraging thing to have to do, but I don't think it's realistic to spend your cap space trying to upgrade that when it's kind of a fluke regardless. Yeah. Um, Difficult decision, though. It is. Um, This also raises the question of what happens beyond this year. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Jack Campbell is a free agent after this season. Um, Mrazek has a couple more years left on his deal. Although a lot of people feel like the Leafs will probably trade him uh, to, to make room for... Presumably it was, it was Campbell's you know, increased price tag next year when he was going hot. But presumably they'll, they'll move him just because it might not be like the absolute best contract. You might, yeah. I mean, this is very much in flux, and this shows you how quickly things can change. Because, yeah, two months ago, people were saying, okay, Campbell's going to make $6 million, um, or, or five to $6 million or something like that. And obviously, they'll just have to unload Mrazek. You know, in the last two months, they've both been bad. Mrazek's been the lesser evil in terms of performance. And I, I guarantee you, Jack Campbell has cost himself money the last two months. Um, you, you know, maybe his season rebounds, he has a great playoff performance, and this is forgotten. But I think it's extended long enough that it's a real issue now. People are going to look at him and say, can this guy really be a starter? Maybe not. He was a 1B for too long. Um, and this is his first year playing a heavy workload, and he started to struggle. So, yeah, I certainly think that this throws it into question what the Leafs are going to do with their goalie position in the offseason. And it's possible they won't do anything <laughs> like they'll extend Campbell at a modest amount if they think there's still hope there. And then they'll hang on to Mrazek and try it again. But I think everything is now on the table. Yeah, but pretty much like it's, this hasn't made anything easier for Kyle Dubas though. No, I mean, God bless the guy. I actually sympathize for him, but sympathize with him. Excuse me, because He's done so many things that have made sense that have gone kind of poorly for him. I'm not saying that he's done everything right. He's done things that turned out to be mistakes or overpays or what have you. But Campbell and Mrazek as a platoon, I think that was a perfectly reasonable way to approach the goaltending position. And, you know, again, the comparison will be to Carolina because Freddie Anderson has been quite good for them. Carolina approached their goaltending this way year after year after year. They platooned their goalies, including Peter Mrazek. He was often one of them. And when it worked, the team was good. When it didn't work, the team was uh, underperforming terrific fancy stats. This is a fate we can probably now sympathize with, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, ultimately, 
a lot of these answers are going to have to come within the Leafs organization. But also with goaltending, it may not be possible to know. I'm sure they're sitting down with Jack and saying, hey, how you doing? What's going on? How are you feeling out there? And the answer, I'm sure, is I'm not feeling great because I just got uh, wiped out in the last couple of games. But yeah, it's a very difficult thing to repair. And you, you just kind of have to keep thinking, okay, he's been a good goalie for too long for this to be his permanent resting state unless something drastic has happened. Yeah, but it, but the thing is, we, we talked about this a lot in the early parts of the year. He hasn't been that good goalie for that long, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think that's that's the worrisome part. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I said um, on, a, on one of our pods with Ian that... You know, every game where Campbell was good gives us a bit more confidence, a bit more confidence that he's good. Similarly, every game where he's bad gives us a bit less confidence that he might be good. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, it's incredibly damaging to the psyche of this fan base, obviously, and, pro- and perhaps internally to the team too. And again, this is, this is made more and more difficult by the fact that, as we've discussed many times, the Leafs are going to face another very good team in round one. Yeah. where the margins between the teams are going to be small. Exactly. You know, if you're facing the Tampa Bay Lightning and Andre Vasilevsky, that looks more and more like a big discrepancy. And when you consider that Tampa probably has the skater advantage, although that's more arguable, that starts to look pretty scary. Um, I think Florida also is a good example of just how crazy goaltenders can be because we would be looking at them too. They signed Sergei Bobrovsky to a huge contract a few years back that looked like an albatross, and Bobrovsky's been pretty good this year. Um, kind of having a, a rebound. He hasn't been the best goal in the league or anything, but he's been good. So, I, I think with all of these things together, you can look at this and labor at this and work at the question, and again, there are things that Kyle Dubas has to know that we can't. But I think despite it being the most glaring overhanging problem with the team, you wind up saying, we just got to hope that they work it out. We got to be patient. We've got to rotate them, not overtax them and keep an eye on any lingering injuries. But the goaltending has been so bad that I think you can expect it to get better on its own. As long as it is this bad, the Leafs are not going to be competitive. Mm -hmm. Notwithstanding they scored 10 goals on Detroit. (laughs) So... Um, did you have any thoughts about Nick Robertson's debut or for the season anyway? I mean, nothing major. He, he, he looked fine. Um, I guess it was interesting that they played him on the fourth line. Uh, the second line has been a topic of much discussion for, and we, we've, you know, chatted about them really for the past couple months. <laughs> um, as like, Hey, you know, no, no alarm bells ringing up, but they've kind of slowed down. And then it's, it's kept happening and kept happening. And now there's kind of alarm bells. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, John Tavares had zero points yesterday, which is kind of crazy in a ten point in a ten goal game. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I mean, I thought he I thought he played well, to be yeah. honest. But um, that second line is clearly needed a bit of, you know, lifting up, and that's a bit of a problem because Tavares and Nylander by themselves should be enough to to make that line go. And offensively, it hasn't really been a problem. It's just they've been so weak defensively. Yeah, and that's uh, kind of glaring. That's also probably not going to get a ton better with the Leafs down, one of their most important defensemen. They yes. they actually played a new defensive arrangement last night, uh, which was kind of interesting. 
Um, I don't know how long it's going to endure after they gave up seven goals, but I think that that was mostly goaltending. So we'll see what Keith thinks. It, just one more note on the goaltending, actually. Keith did uh, call it out. He said Jack has to be better, and he knows that. And while that's stating the obvious, it is a sign in hockey when you publicly call out your goaltender. The convention is not to do that unless it's really glaring. So things have reached a pretty significant pass if we're doing that now. Mm-hmm. So that you know that that's something to certainly think about. Um, you know, I I will say I don't mind seeing more of the Sandine Lyabushkin pairing. I, I like the fit there. Uh, we'll see if it can do anything in the longer term, but I'm willing mm-hmm. to keep watching it. Um, beyond that, I guess we're going to see. There are a lot of options. You know, there was Riley Liljegren for a little bit. I don't think Timothy Liljegren is probably up to that job. No, I, I joked that that was like when the least player placeholder up in the lineup in practice due to injury, but we just did that in an actual game. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, God bless him. But it, like, it's a tough job. And even if stylistically he seems to suit it, playing with Morgan Riley, it's just very hard to do. It's a big leap to make. And, you know, maybe he's not ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's reasonable to expect he ever will be, but there is time for that to improve. It's just, he seems like he's a ways off. Um, so yeah, as regards Nick Robertson, he always plays with a lot of energy, sometimes bordering on too much energy, uh, to look at the boarding call that he took, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, certainly no complaints about his work ethic and his drive and all of those things. So I guess we'll see more of them, but you know, you would like to see him, make an impact on the score sheet instead of on the end boards. Yes. Um, um, yeah. But yeah, and I guess, sorry, just to circle back to that second line point, we thought maybe Robertson might show up there. Instead, mm-hmm. it was Kasha. I mean, that line looked fine. They, they did well. Uh, you know, if, if the least target a forward, it's probably going to be basically to, to shore up that line. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. Uh, you, you know, on the one hand, we can say, hey, it's not very good if we need to put in help to float John Tavares at this point when he's already playing with William Nylander. And Mm -hmm. Alex Kerfoot is a perfectly competent left winger. But at the same time, that's the reality we're facing. We have John Tavares for this contract. Right, it's a sunk cost. Yeah, this is it. So, yeah. Uh, To some extent, you just got to live with it. And in that case, it still makes sense to say, okay, we're going to do things to to make him playable because he's going to be playing for us at this cap it for a while. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, notwithstanding that, I feel like I don't want to totally lose perspective on the fact that the first line is absolutely dominant right now. Right. And that's the best thing you can say about this team is that they have as good a first line as anyone in the world. Yes. And I'm M- Michael Bunting in, in particular has just been awesome. Right. Like his, his, he's kicking ass. Yeah. He's just been <laughs> genuinely very good. Yeah, there's and, been uh, there's been no drop off from Zach Hyman to him. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the staggering thing. Even if you say, okay, it's mostly driven by his line mates, he's fit like a glove there. Um, he's delivering in every respect. He's added an element. It's um, it's working really well. So that's that's very encouraging for us. Um, we were gonna segue into a segment that is perhaps less fun for our egos called things we were wrong about uh, you know there are people do this on the internet they review things 
that they said and say, okay, where did I go wrong? I feel like it's a good thing to do. It keeps yeah. you honest. It keeps you, you know? humble. Yeah. Boy, I did not realize how often I was wrong about stuff until I started doing a podcast and there yeah. was evidence. Um, now, I do want to add, in our defense, we aren't wrong all the time. Um, I was actually listening. I got stuck at the grocery store. Um, to one of our old po- podcasts while we, where we surveyed the league. And I think we were actually kind of on the money talking about Nashville, New Jersey, uh, a few other teams like that. And I feel good about how our analysis holds up on those. However, this segment is not us taking a victory lap about being right about some stuff. This is about us trying to figure out where did we go off about a couple of teams. Um, when we talked about them last summer and what we expected about them, uh, how did we end up so far from the results they ended up putting up? Mm-hmm. So in the interests of honesty and disclosure, Seattle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We expected them to, <laughs> you wrote, we expected them to have a good defense and a bad offense and we were half right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that, that stings a bit. Um, I'll say this. Their defense is still, I'm going to say middling. Mm-hmm. Their offense is terrible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I made, uh, like, a back-of-the-envelope case. I said, you know, they might have an okay offense. They have a few guys who can score. No. And so they, they've been been dreadful. And it's actually gotten worse. You know, early in the season, people were pointing out, validly, that Seattle wasn't playing that badly from a skater perspective, but their goaltending from Philipp Grubauer was just gruesome. And that was true for a time. However, recently they've been also just not playing very well in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Their XG has collapsed. They're under 45% since the start of December. Um, They are still kind of middling defensively, but they are the worst offensive team in the NHL 5v5 in that time. There's not a lot to say in their favor. So you combine that with bad goaltending, and you have a team that is contending for a lottery pick. Um, Pretty much, yeah. And it's like... Goaltending is by far the biggest issue, but it's clearly not the only one. Mm-hmm. Like, straight up, I thought this team would be a little bit better than it was, and that might have been an overcorrection from getting burned on the Vegas thing, where I predicted them to be worse than they turned out to be. Um, that said, I think everyone agrees they didn't do as well on the expansion draft as Vegas did, partly due to teams learning from their mistakes in the Vegas expansion draft, but also it seems like they overplayed their hand. Um, we talked about, we actually did mention this in terms of, they didn't get draft picks to nearly the extent Vegas did at all. You know, Vegas collected tons of draft compensation to not take certain players, um, to take other ones instead, or also just in rerouting trades. Seattle did very little of that. Right. And the reporting at the time was that they were essentially charging very high prices for these sorts of deals, Uh, like deals with. Uh, teams wanting to protect certain players or, or, you know, mitigate their expansion loss in some way. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the, those teams just ended up dealing with each other, like Toronto and Pittsburgh made a deal. Yes, lots of teams did sort of these equalizing deals where they moved around forwards of defensemen so that the market as a whole protected its players a lot better this time, as opposed to dealing with the expansion franchise directly. So the result is... The Seattle Kraken have no additional firsts coming their way right now. 
they you know they have an extra second and a couple of extra fourth round picks that's fine but given that they had a unique opportunity to get draft capital that's a big loss now we were talking about why were we wrong i thought this team was better uh than it clearly is however i did say that draft capital did Vegas a lot of favors because Vegas used them as ammunition for trades once they realized they were pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, they drafted prospects with them who they threw in trades or they just traded the picks themselves. And just to recap a little bit here, uh, they gave up Lindbergh, Eric Brandstrom, who's a good prospect that they drafted in the first round, and a second for Mark Stone. Uh, Nick Suzuki, Thomas Tatar, and a second for Max Pacioretty. Uh, Suzuki was a first round pick for them. Two seconds for Alan He was Martin. their first, or he was, I guess, their second first-round pick. The first was, I think, Cody Glass. Uh, yeah, I want to say so, but I may have that out of order. Uh, two seconds for Alec Martinez. Uh, they gave up Malcolm Saban, a prospect, a second and a fifth for Robin Lehner. They gave up Alex Tooch, uh, Peyton Krebs, who is another high pick, a first and a second for Jack Eichel. Like, all of this stuff was facilitated by them having a huge uh, cache of draft capital. That came from the expansion draft. Seattle didn't get any of that. And so, on the one hand, I overestimated how good this team would be in terms of it does not have enough of offensive drivers. But on the other hand, I did say it was going to be a problem, and now it is going to be one, in terms of fixing that. Like, they won't be able to get better in a hurry because they don't have the assets that they should have gotten. Or mm -hmm. at least could have hoped to get. Um. That said, you know, and you know what? Yanni Gord is, like, doing fine. But, you know, if he's kind of your first-line center, give or take, you know, Jared McCann is outscoring him this year. But Yeah, McCann has been quite good, too. McCann has been quite good. You know, Jordan Eberle has been fine. Um, but they do not have anyone who's, like, a real standard offensive star. And Vegas had just a lot of guys who were good offensively, and then a couple of crazy seasons from Marchessault and Carlson. Yes. So. And Roddy Smith. Yes. And so, yeah, I, I mean, we, we definitely, maybe we didn't recognize, or at least I didn't recognize, just how rare the Vegas thing was in terms of getting so much viable forward depth. And then the William Carlson thing in particular, this guy who had a career high of nine goals and then scoring 40, that was just unprecedented, and it's not something anyone can repeat. Right. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I'll take the L on that one. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I was just as wrong as you on, on them, generally. Um, you wonder if, if Vegas, or sorry, not Vegas, if Seattle would have been better off if they, like, didn't kind of galaxy brain um, some of their expansion picks. Mm -hmm. There definitely were some cases where players were like, why did you, or where fans were like, why did you take that player? Vladimir Tarasenko looks kind of... I, I mean, I get where they were coming from, for the record, because yeah, he was they, in a weird spot. And they got Vince Dunn, right? Yeah. And Dunn, I don't know how he's done this year, but he was well-regarded, at least. Yeah. He has been less successful in Seattle, <laughs> I have to say. Um, Tarasenko is, by the way, resurgent and having a point per game for a good St. Louis team. Now, that said, there was not apparently much of a market for him, and he did make a trade request out of St. Louis. Um... You know, he was coming off a couple of injury-plagued years. He played a total of 34 games in the previous two seasons. So there was obviously a lot of risk there. But Seattle had a very conservative expansion draft. You know, they, they did not take on 
significant money or term pretty much ever if they could have avoided it. The tragedy of it is they gave significant money and term to basically one guy uh, in Philippe Grubauer, who is having a dreadful year now. And then I, I guess a little bit to Jamie Alexiak, but they do still have a lot of flexibility into the future. So that's good in, in terms of assets, but this is going to be a more traditional expansion franchise. They're going to have to work their way up patiently from a lower starting point than Vegas did. You yeah. Add, you added here, is hockey Twitter nicer to them because they have a lot of popular analytics people on staff? I think, I think people are nicer to them because yeah. of that. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. So like, I think the criticism, I think they got less criticism than a lot of teams would have gotten because you know, a lot of us on hockey Twitter, no one like the people involved. Yeah. Who are, you know, by all accounts, smart people. And we don't yes. know to what extent they determine the moves that actually get made. Right. Yes. That's always down to the GM. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did see there was a lot of defensive stuff on Hockey Twitter early in the season saying, okay, how could we have foreseen that Philippe Grubauer would become terrible? And I think that that was sort of a valid defense in the first couple of months. I think now it's fair to say, look, the, the questions of who is going to score were legitimate. And I did hear more of those from people who were not super analytically inclined. So, yeah. Maybe the nerds got to take a little bit of an L on that one, along with Seattle, which has mm -hmm. taken very many Ls. <laughs> <laughs> Calgary. This one annoys me because I was higher on Calgary than they wound up before last season. I was lower on them than they wound up this season or have been doing this season. Um, yeah, we spent all of last year being like, you know what? I think Calgary is the best of these these middle Atlantic team or middle North teams. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and they were like, yeah, we're just going to scuffle. And then they got Daryl Sutter in uh, the hockey cowboy. And he has. I mean, he has them playing well. It has to be said they're playing extremely well. Um, <laughs> but as you pointed out here. What is the number one thing that helps drive your results in a big way? In hockey, well, goaltending, we just talked about it. Jacob Markstrom has gotten it together. Yes, and I mean, in this, in their case, it, it's not as if they're getting kind of unexpectedly good goaltending. Markstrom was very good in Vancouver for the most part, was signed to a big money deal by mm -hmm. Calgary, and then kind of shit the bed last year. And this year he's performing probably the way they expect to, right? In the same way, like, you know, when, when Austin Matthews outshoots his expected goals, we're not like, oh, we're getting lucky that Matthews is outshooting his expected goals. I think Calgary fans can justifiably say, you know, we're getting the goaltending we were, we were paid for. Right. You can say the first season was more the aberration than yes. this season, even though this season, like, he's doing very, very well. Mm -hmm. um, Daryl Sutter seems to have a way of getting good goaltending at times. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that's actually true. Jonathan Quick would put up good save percentages, but I think there was always a consensus that that was overrating him when you compared it to goals above expected. Yeah, and well, right now Calgary's defense just looks good everywhere. It's not like they're um, allowing a lot of point shots or anything. They just suppress shots generally. Yeah, uh, and that's to be expected. I have to say, if I was wrong about one really specific thing about Calgary, I thought they were going to miss Mark Giordano more than they have. Mm -hmm. um, significantly. He's gone to Seattle, where I hope he's happy. But the Calgary defense is a little bit less uh, in terms of name value than they were before. And some of the names that you recognize, you know, Eric Branson and Nikita Zadorov, 
were hockey Twitter punchlines for some time. Uh, now, Chris Tanev was always well thought of defensively, and he immediately had a good year last year. So him being good again isn't a huge surprise. Um, him playing as many games as he has might be more of a surprise because of his injury history. But he's gotten into 51, so good for him. I always thought this team had it in them to be good. But having been burned on them once, I started saying, okay, maybe they're just going to be middling. Right. And uh, we also thought that there wasn't truly elite NHL talent on this roster. And Johnny Goodrow is having a season that makes us look quite wrong on that score. Yeah, he's always been an exceptional talent, but he was in a bit of a modest decline. It seemed like the relationship with the organization was not that strong. Mm -hmm. To be clear, when I say like a bit of a modest decline, he was still very productive. Yeah. He's always been a good player. It's just going from productive to fringe heart contender, as he's doing this season, um, that makes a huge difference, even if a lot of it is, you know, he's getting all the bounces. Yes, but, I mean, it, it's worth noting, he's getting all the bounces, but his line is also just dummying pools, too. Yeah. Like, the the Flames are a very good team in fantasy stats. There's an argument that the Flames belong in the conversation that we often have of who are the really good teams. And when we see Tampa, Florida, Carolina, Colorado, maybe Vegas, and then maybe Toronto. Calgary has probably put itself at least at the edge of that conversation. Um, and, and that's very much to their credit, you know? I, I am impressed with how good they are defensively, and Daryl Sutter, I think, is due some credit for that, even though I think they were always better than they appeared as long as Markstrom was going to rebound, right? Like, mm -hmm. they were being undermined by goaltending before, they're being strengthened by goaltending now from the same guy. Some of that is luck. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, like, they're they're impressive. So, yeah. Uh, the Islanders. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I am enjoying this. I, yeah. I, we don't have any real rivalry with the Islanders, but it, it was annoying to see them so good playing, like, uh, you know, a pretty, what I find, ugly brand of hockey. Yeah, but, I okay. Mean, it, I, no, I'm going to go off on that for mm -hmm. 30 seconds here. Sorry, I got to interrupt you. The Islanders' brand of hockey sucks to watch. Sorry, it's fine if you're a fan of the Islanders and you're winning. And that's his virtue and you'll always prioritize winning. I am sick of this idea that you have to be some sophisticated hockey viewer uh, and then you'll enjoy watching teams block 1,500 shots a night. No, it's boring as hell and it doesn't deserve to work. So in a world where there is so much injustice, the Islanders being bad gives me a little bit of hope. That the moral arc of the universe is wrong. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> I didn't really have a lot to say, but yeah, I'm just enjoying <laughs> that the Islanders are, are not doing so well this year. Um, with the Islanders, we, we were in the States for like for three years or whatever. We were like, eh, we don't really believe the Islanders. We don't really believe in the Islanders. And at a certain amount, at a certain point, it's like, okay, they've done this for a little bit now. Their stats are actually pretty good when you look at them. They, they don't look like they're not a 45% Corsi team anymore or anything yeah. like that. Right? They look like a good team. Yeah, and they did. And now they're back to mediocrity and expected goals. But their biggest issue, and at least we did notice this was always going to be the issue, is lack of offense. And now they lost Jordan Everly to Seattle, and he is a dynamic 50-point player. His production never seemed to match his talent level to me. I've always thought Everly had superlative offensive skills. 
He shows up really well on highlight reels, but he sometimes didn't seem to produce in line with that. Still, he's a guy who can create. And I think the Islanders have struggled for want of guys who can create. And do you have a funny stat about that, Fulman? Yes, I do. There are seven Leafs who have at least 20 assists this year. Riley, Marner, Tavares, Matthews, Kerfoot, Elander, Bunting. There is one Islander who has 20 assists this year, and it's Matt Barzal. I think that that is sort of emblematic of some of the struggles they're having. It's just a point-counting stat, but it struck, it struck me as important because yeah, they're not scoring. As a team, like on, as, on the whole, they have a mediocre offense that has underperformed its expected goal, so that's a recipe for like a terrible offense. Yeah, and you can say, as I think some people have said, defensive teams probably do better in the playoffs than you might expect in a tighter environment. That's a difficult thing to prove. Um, there are lots of clouding factors, even though scoring does go down. You can also say, look, it's better teams and there are no backup goaltenders most of the time. But the Islanders maybe have some playoff magic. They've done well in the playoffs in recent years. But you have to get there. And it doesn't look like they're going to. And they've always flirted with not having good enough offense to right. really make a dent. It seemed like at every point during the year, they'd have like this crisis of faith because they'd go like eight games without scoring more than two goals. Yeah. Right. And then play, come playoff time, they would get the timely goals they needed. Exactly. And so that's always in the background. It has to be said, there are some factors here. Their new arena was delayed uh, in terms of them being able to move into it and start playing at the start of the year. So they opened the year with uh, something like 15 games on the road and they got smoked. Uh, for a lot of that stretch. And it really put them behind the eight ball. You know, as they are now, they look to me like a mediocre team that doesn't have enough scoring, but could sort of hang around. But that won't be enough to dig out of the hole that they've dug for themselves. Um, as it stands at present, um, they are, let me just have a look here, 19 points out of the second wildcard spot. Now they have six games in hand on Washington. But even so, that's I mean, yeah, pretty if they close win to every single one of the, those games. Yeah. Then, um, then you're still seven points back. So yeah. <laughs> it's going to be tough, is what I'm saying. So, yeah, I think they've dug too deep a hole. I think we just got tired of being wrong about the Islanders. Mm -hmm. You know, like when a team is good too many times in a row, you start thinking there has to be a good reason. And. I think that there there is more to them, but they were not quite as good as we thought. And so and then certain losses, certain aging, and certain unfortunate outside factors like the, the arena thing all combined to put them behind the eight ball. Um so so yeah, I I do think that the Islanders also have some real questions going forward. They don't have a ton of cap space. They have a lot of term deals, yeah, which are fine. But, like, they've positioned themselves like a team that is going to go to the playoffs, and they were uh, in, in recent years. If they're not that, then they don't have as much flexibility as they would have hoped. Right. Um, yeah. I, I sort of... I mean, with... with... It's interesting that no one seems to be mentioning, you know, any of the moves that Lou Lamorello's made as, like, particularly bad. Mm. I don't know why that's not discussed. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, there's a, um, 
there's a weird dichotomy there where I feel like he almost doesn't get enough respect from Stats Twitter, but then he almost yeah. gets a a like, curious level thing. of yeah. yeah, a curious level of reverence, let's say, from the traditional hockey media because uh, he is august in his great age. You know, he's been around forever. He's won several cups. He's built franchises that improved, at least in multiple places. Um, and so now there's a bit of an unwillingness to note that, hey, they're paying large amounts of money for guys in their mid-30s into the future. Like, Anders Lee is 31 right now, but he's got four years after this one at $7 million. You better hope he stays good. And that's duplicated four or five times up and down the roster. Mm-hmm. You know, I also think it has to be said, the era in which Lou Lamarillo made his hay was also an era that was kinder to guys in their 30s. It was easier to play longer term at that point, and these contracts would not be as glaring um, as they are in a league that seems to be getting younger and faster. So, yeah, anyway, that's their problem. Uh, and I'm sure in the off-season pod we'll update with them signing some 400-year-old man. But <laughs> we can leave that one alone. Yeah. Um, okay, last one. The Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> this one's just fun. It is. You know, and, sometimes okay, okay, bad here. things happen to bad people. Yeah, and <laughs> we, we have to say they're on like a five or six game winning streak right now. They're actually on like the longest active winning streak in the league. Yeah, um, fuck them. I don't believe it. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything. But yeah, no, they are. They, look, I mean, under Martin St. Louis, they've looked uh, rejuvenated. Mm-hmm. You know, including at our expense, unfortunately. Yes. But, but uh, yeah. Um, so there's a, it, it is striking for a team to go to the, the finals and then almost certainly miss the playoffs the next year. You know, notwithstanding this little uh, fun winning streak that they've gone on and that Cole Caulfield looks like he wants to live again and all that sort yeah. of stuff. They're well, so far just, out of the playoffs. Spot. Not just miss the playoffs, but like they, they might, they might get a, they have a decent shot at a top three pick. Yeah. Like they are dueling with Arizona for last place. Um, and Arizona is a team that as everyone knew, including us was built to lose games. Montreal was not built to lose games to start the season. They were built to win them. And so it's a bit of a dark situation for them. But a lot of things happened to have them go from Stanley Cup finalist to lottery finalist. Um, First thing is they lost their first line center, their top defenseman, and their playoff starting goalie um, to various causes. Philip Deneau signed in Los Angeles. Shea Weber is LTIR retired. Uh, Carey Price is working through rehab and hasn't been playing. Uh, those are significant losses for any team. You know, that's the top person mm-hmm. at three positions. That stinks. Uh, and especially those were all core elements of the run that they made, which was very difficult to beat defensively. Exceptional goaltending. Philip Deneau yeah. would shut down opposing forward lines, including ours, unfortunately. Shea Weber, same sort of thing. And then Carey Price stood on his head. Mm-hmm. So all of those things going, you would expect them to get worse, and we did. And we even said, like, look, this is not actually a good team. This is a fringe playoff team. However, they were worse than fringe playoff. So we have to account for how did they go from just mediocre to abysmal. Mm -hmm. And so I've come to the next point. Was Dom Duchamp the worst coach in the universe? (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, even when the Habs were doing well in the mm-hmm. playoffs, I did not get the sense that the fan base really liked uh, Dom Duchar. 
Mm. Yeah, because, like, the regular season, they kind of scuffled. They only made the playoffs because of the divisional arrangement being what it was. Yeah. And so I think that there was a real sense for a long time there. It's like, is this guy really to be relied on? Um, Full disclosure, I think Claude Julian is a bit stiff and old school. I also think he's a good coach. Mm -hmm. And it would not surprise me if some of the structure that he instilled was helpful in making that playoff run. That said, Ducharme was behind the bench for that period. It's just you have to come to a kind of curious conclusion where you say maybe he didn't have time to make the changes he wanted to make. And in fortuitous circumstances, like they had on their playoff run, it was kind of fine. Then the next season, circumstances are a lot more difficult. Uh, He has time to try and restructure the team in his image. Uh, Things kind of fall apart. Mm-hmm. Now this sounds like we're just dunking on him, but there are there were signs. Mm-hmm. Let's say, um, Jeff Petrie in December uh, of 2021 had some quotes that seemed a lot like they were shots at the coach, and so I'm going to quote from them. It's the same things over and over. We're not playing as a team. We're not playing as a group. It's like you're searching to find where people are. It seems like there's no structure out there. You watch it up top. I'm assuming from the press box. And there's times where you're scratching your head. It feels like everybody knows where we should be, but we're not going to those places. We're not making it easy for or anybody on the ice, except most of the time, the other team. That's not a great <laughs> sign. <laughs> this That's is like, a vet- I, I, I hadn't heard that quote. That's like really, really calling. It was striking. Okay. And Jeff Petrie is a 34 year old veteran defenseman who played, uh, Five seasons for the Edmonton Oilers. So this man has seen some shit. And uh, I think that that was almost unquestionably a bit of a shot across the bow of the coach. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's no structure out there. Uh, now he says everybody knows where we should be, but we're not going to those places. Well, even if he's just observing what's happening, that's unquestionably a reflection on the coach. Yes. Um, Arpon Basu of The Athletic. Habs beat reporter also talked about overcomplication, overcomplication and strategy. Also, apparently, my efforts to say the word, uh, leading to players being confused, and that was interesting. He said there were a lot of players who seemed uncertain where they were supposed to go. Um, I don't know. That's, I could see that certainly being an issue, especially for the young players. Mm-hmm. Cole Caulfield seemed like he couldn't do anything right under. It, it looked like he was playing with a ringette stick. Yeah. Uh, and this is a guy who made his name scoring at every level. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, you wonder how... We, we've said, you know, many times when we talked about the Habs this year, they are not nearly as bad as, like, this year indicates. Right? It's impossible for them to be. Like, they, they, it's, it's truly a bunch of things going wrong. They've, they've had a bunch of injuries. We mentioned the ones off the top to, like, Weber and, and Price. Not technically an injury, but unavailable to play. But, like, Gallagher mm-hmm. was out forever. You know, they, they've had injuries up and down the lineup. Mm-hmm. Petrie has taken a step back, and he was really important for them. Uh, in, in a sense, this, this might not be the worst. This is a, a year where it's funny to laugh at Habs fans, but they might be able to just like kind of do a one-year tank, effectively. Mm-hmm. Get a really good prospect, which, again, they've always sort of lacked. Uh, Caulfield aside, Caulfield's a you know, great prospect, but like, was not seen a, during the draft as a, like a top-five type of player. Mm-hmm. And they might be able to like reset from there with a true blue chipper. Mm-hmm. Which would go a long way for them if they could get a real offensive star. And yeah. 
you know, the truth is, as fun as it was to make fun of Cole Caulfield, and I do hold to my opinion, the Canadians are the worst team in the league for drumming up their prospects before time. Every team is bad. Toronto was very bad. Montreal is the worst. I can't <laughs> prove this. I believe it in my heart. But they did talk up Caulfield as if he was the next great thing. And it made it funny when he didn't score and got sent to the AHL. But he's going to be good. He'll be a good player. I don't think that there's much doubt about that. And under Martin St. Louis, who was taken over as interim coach, he's looked like a man reborn. Um, if it is coaching and St. Louis is the fix, then yeah, it's not that hard to see the Habs being better next year by a significant margin. Under St. Louis, and this is a tiny sample at this point, they're playing average hockey again. And they're winning. So whatever you want to infer from that, you know, under a new coach, there's always a bit of a dead cat bounce just because mm -hmm. it's a new lease on life for someone who might have been alienated from the previous yeah, coach. Or like fallen out of favor in any way. Right. It's, mm -hmm. it's, I think kind of very human for that to happen. Yeah. It's a chance to hit reset on your career when things were going dreadfully for everybody. Yeah. Um, and St. Louis has always been considered an inspirational presence, you know, as one of the shortest players, um, in the NHL to have an impact that he had, you know, he was always kind of underestimated based on his size and mm -hmm. he wound up winning scoring trophies in the Stanley cup. So yeah, um, that might work for them, but we'll see. Okay. Uh, do we want to do the third segment? Um, you know what? We're, let's, let's, let's tease the audience. Let's <laughs> save that for another day. And we're not going to tell you what it is. Oh yeah. We have, uh, some, other leaves bragging, but it will keep. Yes. We, think. So, we, we yeah, are we'll keep so confident hour. in what we're going to brag about that we are sure that it'll be there a week from now. <laughs> yeah. So stay tuned for this mystery segment. But yes. Won't shock um, anybody, but we'll be fun. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's nothing else we want to discuss. Um, so thank you to everyone for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuldeman's work at pensionpenpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuldeman. Uh, we'll see you next week.